Thank you for coming to the podcast. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast on CagesidePress.com. I'm Danny Gilby Freeland, joined as always by my co-host Shockwave Dave Tremonte. UFC is back in the apex this weekend for UFC Vegas 71, headlined by a heavyweight tilt between Curtis Blades and Sergey Pavlovich. We'll be breaking down that fight as well as two other of our favorite fights on this main card as part of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays, where we'll also give you an underdog and a parlay that we think will make your wallet fat this weekend. And in addition to that, we've also got the interviews you know and love. Kicking off the show this week is our interview with Brady Heastand. And a little bit later on, we'll be talking to Ricky Glenn, both of which on this fight card. And we're going to get to all that great content for you right now. The hosts are ready. The fighters are ready. Listeners, make some noise if you are ready for Top Turtle MMA with Shockwave and Gumby. All right, and to me today is Brady Heastan, who fights Dinabot Gurel at UFC Vegas 71. That fight is on April 22nd. So, Brady, I, I wanted to start here. I- obviously, you had the really close fight with Ricky Tercios, but then you turn it around. You get the dominant performance your second time out. You finally get your hand raised. What did it feel like after, you know, not just the, the tough debut, but the ACL surgery and all that, to finally be in that winner's circle? Yeah, it was huge. Like, that was, you know, a dream come true. And I knew I could do it, so it wasn't a surprise to me. I knew I was going to go out there and win that fight. I was just excited to actually introduce myself, you know, to the fans and stuff with the dominant performance, especially not, you know, having an injury for that fight. I went into the Ricky fight with, you know, no ACL and a torn MCL and torn meniscus. So it was cool to compete at 100% for that Fernie Garcia fight. Absolutely. And it wasn't just that you were at 100% too. The, the thing I noticed about that fight is you looked a lot bigger. Was was that something that you had intended on doing, getting, you know, buffer stronger going into the fight with Fernie Garcia? You know, the funny part is, is I was actually smaller. So I, I was just more uh, in shape and more, I guess, ripped at that point because I'd been working with, you know, an actual SNC coach. I had actually been training the right way. I've been uh, working out the right way because before that I was, you know, a, a you know, firefighter. I was a resident firefighter. I was working 10 shifts a month. And so I wasn't able to put my full into the sport. Now, you know, after getting off of the, the, you know, ultimate fighter and then I had, you know, money to buy my own house, I was able to invest myself fully into training. I got a good SNC coach at the PI and back home. You know, I started working with a dietitian, all that good stuff. So it all added up to make me just like a better athlete. And do my cardio was next level in that fight. I didn't even feel tired. I was standing up in between rounds and stuff like that. So, yeah, but the, that's the funny thing. is because everyone's like, you look so big. And I actually went into fight week, I think, like two or three pounds lighter. That's insane. Because you, you look like you're 10 pounds heavier, if, if I'm being completely honest. And so I have to imagine, you know, you go in there three pounds lighter and, you know, a lot of it is being, you know, strength cardio is all there. Was it an easier cut for you, too? Yeah, it was It was so much easier, actually. So, at in total, I think I cut after, like, water loading. Um, so, the morning of, I only cut three pounds. I literally, for, like, an actual cut, because you water load and that's how you get some of the weight off, I only spent one 20-minute session in the bathtub and then one 15-minute 
session wrapped up in towels, and I was underweight. I, I weighed in at 135 even. That's insane, because the question I was going to ask, being such a young guy and, and looking like you were seemingly getting bigger, do, do you wonder if someday, you know, fe- featherweight is the right limit for you instead of bantamweight? But it sounds like you're actually settling into 35 even better right now. Yeah, you know, the biggest thing is, I to answer that question, I think I will eventually need to go to 45. And I think maybe not soon, maybe a few more years. Just because when I'm, you know, I'm a professional, like in fight camp, I'm dieting and I'm doing everything I can to get my weight low enough so that the cut is easy. But the dieting part is actually, you know, a little bit stressful just because I am cutting some, a lot of weight to get down to where it's easy for me to cut. So at some point, I think it will be easier for me to just go to 45 because I have the frame for it and I put on muscle like super easy. So if I need to fight at 45, I think it's doable. And who knows, maybe in the next few years, I'll definitely make that jump. That makes a lot of sense. Now, we're talking a lot about changes here from that last fight. But I got to ask you about the biggest change and whether or not we're going to see it again this weekend. And that's the mustache. The mustache that you were showing off in the Fernie Garcia fight. Is it back for for UFC Vegas 71? Let's just say I'm undefeated with the mustache. (laughs) So let's, uh, well, I guess we'll see. But, yeah, dude, I'm bringing it back for sure. I'm undefeated with the mustache. i got to keep the ball rolling. I love it. I love it. All right. So we, we've got a confirmed mustache back for this one. So let's talk about the fight itself. You know, Donat Baccarell, he, he might not be on the best run right now. But the thing about him in the UFC that people have loved to watch is he's got absolute dynamite in his hands, right? Now, you kind of solidified yourself as a huge grappling threat at the Bantamweight division in your last fight. Do you see this kind of cut and dry as, like, this is going to be, you know, a, a guy who only wants to strike versus a guy who knows he gets it better on the mat? Or or do you really anticipate throwing hands with him a little bit? For sure. I'll definitely throw some hands with him. I think one thing people were surprised about my last fight is how well I was throwing my kicks. And, you know, I was actually landing. And I had I had some good shots landing on Fernie. I staggered him a few times. Um, and I think I can do the same thing to Denah. I definitely think he doesn't want to go to the ground with me. I don't think he's going to – he's not even going to think about shooting, and he's going to expect me to shoot, which I probably will at some point. But I'm definitely not, you know, shying away from banging it out with him too. I like that. Now, I'm curious too because I've heard this from people who sort of get that moniker before, that they are, you know, a quote-unquote grappler. Do you feel any pressure to try to to sort of shed that off of yourself, to to show people that you're well-rounded? Or, you know, is I mean, obviously winning is the first thing, but, you know, is shedding off the idea of being, you know, a little bit more one-dimensional as sometimes the media will put on you, is that important to you as well? Yeah, I do. I think I do want to be – I want everyone to know me as a well-rounded mixed martial artist, not just a really good grappler, which my grappling is going to be a big threat either way. But I want people to fear my hands too because I – I got I got dynamite in my hands. I'm slick on the feet, and I want people to know it. I love it. Now, before we get to getting the official prediction and how you see this fight going, I did want to just generally ask you about the Bantamweight division because it's an exciting time right now in the Bantamweight division. You got, obviously, the champ, Aljamain Sterling, running away with things at the top of the division and a seeming slew of contenders lining up, including one who hasn't been there in a while, who's seemingly the next one in, in Henry Cejudo. What do you think of Cejudo jumping the line to get the shot at Aljamain Sterling? And who do you think poses the biggest threat to the current champ? 
You know, uh, well, first, I do, yeah, the, the division is stacked right now. It's such a fun division. There's so many guys at the top that anyone can beat anyone on a given night. Um, then what you're talking about, Cejudo, you know, I don't disagree with it. Just because he's such a, you know, people don't give him credit because he's so cringy. And he he just like, you know, people are almost tired of hearing him and seeing him. But, dude, he won the Olympics. And he was a two-division champ. So I think he deserves it, honestly, even with the time away. Um, I'm excited to see what he can do. You know, if he beats Alderman and mixes things up and gives people like Marab a shot back at the title. Um, so I'm not I'm not upset with it. Um, and then what was your last question? I said, if it's not Henry, who's the, the toughest matchup for Alderman Sterling amongst those guys at the top right now? Honestly, I think it's Marab, his buddy. Because I think if I look at all these other guys, obviously he beat Peter Jan, so that was a given. I think Sanhagen, it goes very similar for Aljamain and and Peter Jan, where I think he can outgrapple me. Already, he's already submitted once. I'm not saying that Sanhagen hasn't got better, but I can just see, you know, Aljamain doing similar things and just taking him down. The one person that has something that you know would be a threat is Marab's grappling and his wrestling and his pace. No one has a pace like Marab, so I think that's honestly the toughest fight for Aljamain, even though they said they won't fight. Yeah, I totally agree on that one, and it would be a fight I'd enjoy seeing. Now, the, the next fight I'm enjoying seeing, though, is in a couple of weekends when we see you fight UFC Vegas 71, April 22nd. Give us the official prediction. How's this one end with Dana Bakarel? You know, he's a fast starter, and he comes out tough. I think, uh, I think it'll be a good first round. I see myself putting the pace on him, tiring him out, and I finished him either the second or third round. All right. Well, you heard it here first, folks. This has been Brady Heatsan, who fights Dana Bakarel, UFC Vegas 71. That fight once again, April 22nd. Brady, thanks so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Yeah, I appreciate you. Thank you. Well, we hope you enjoyed that interview with Brady Heatsan. I once again, I'm Daniel Gubby Freeland, joined now by my co-host, Shockwave Dave Tremonte. Dave, uh, last weekend, good UFC event, but we're actually going to talk about the current events in UFC. I want to get your take on this. The the co-main event of the upcoming pay-per-view between Charlie Oliveira versus uh, Benil Dariush has fallen apart. Charlie Oliveira is going to need a little bit of time before that fight actually happens. So now we're scrambling for a co-main event. It seems like Gilbert Burns is in there. But it also seems like maybe Bilal Muhammad is his opponent. Maybe Dustin Poirier is his opponent. I want to get your take. What do you think should happen? What do you think these guys are bargaining for? Like, what what, what would you like to see as the co-main event here? All right, this is a loaded question, Gumby, and it's one that just keeps coming up because I'm really, I've become so amazed with the depth of the UFC roster because you and I, Gumby, are both longtime fans. If you remember, let's just go back to like 2006. GSP had like two fights and was fighting for a title shot. I mean, the depth was just not there, right? I mean, they barely had a top 15 to be filled out. And now there are... 50 good, I should take that back, 50 very good fighters from uh, from 145 to 170. 145, 150, 170. Each of those divisions has killers. I got, I got like 35. I, I actually think 35 is maybe the best division. I, I'd say there's 75 good fighters at, at 35. Jeez, that division I was, is so deep. Yeah, yeah I – 
throw it in there. You're 100% right. I couldn't remember off the top of my head how many fighters were signed to 135, but you're right. So those four divisions, it's amazing. And you can, we keep get. do you notice how over the last, like, let's say five, six years, think of Max's run to the title shot. He had to fight, you know, 10 people, 10 wins in a row. Tony Ferguson had a million wins in a row, never even really got a real title shot, got an interim shot. Um, and we just keep coming up against this. So now you have guys like Belial Muhammad. Um, who else? Uh, Benil Dar, uh, Benil Darush. Darush yeah, he's, he's had a yeah. crazy run. <laughs> crazy run. And these people, you know, it's like they deserve the title shot, but then you have other people who also deserve title shots. And, you know, so you ask, what do you do about this falling apart fight? I, the rumor is that Gilbert Burns said he would fight as long as it guarantees him a title shot. He's very deserving. Leo Muhammad does not want to cut weight, though. He's also deserving of a title shot. You were the one who told me off air there's a rumor that Poirier said he would come up to 170. I like that idea. I like Poirier comes up to 170. It's a big money fight. You pay him whatever you need to pay him. But it, And Gilbert Burns fights him. And if Gilbert Burns wins, it guarantees him the title shot. And unfortunately, um, Bolio Muhammad would be the odd man out in that situation. But, I mean, this is something that just keeps coming up and keeps coming up in the UFC. Uh, they have too many good fighters in those four divisions for enough ti- with not enough title shots to go around. Yeah, well, and I'll say this, too. First of all, I, I do think you're right. I think at the end of the day, Bilal Muhammad is going to be the one who falls out of this picture and, and winds up needing to fight again. He's going to, unfortunately for him, win the Shavkat Rachmanov sweet stakes because, uh, look, Shavkat's another guy who's on a crazy run, right, and, and just hasn't had a title shot yet. Um, and is, is, you know, he's probably in the same boat as Bilal Muhammad here. And I would say this. The reason I like the Dustin Poirier fight more than the Bilal Muhammad fight is – what is the UFC looking for here? They've got a main event between Aljamain Sterling and Henry Cejudo, and I think they're asking themselves, people dislike Aljamain Sterling. Do they dislike him enough to tune in? People felt cringy about Henry Cejudo three years ago. Did people remember that they felt cringy about him three years ago? So, like, I think they're asking themselves, does this fight alone sell a lot of pay-per-views? Now, of course, they've got the ESPN guarantee and whatever, but they want to make their, their partners happy. I think they're asking themselves, does this main event sell? So if you're asking yourself, what can you put on as a co-main event here? What can I put on as far as a common name that people will recognize and be like, yes, got to tune into that. Charlie Oliveira was that. Is Bilal Muhammad Gilbert Burns that? I'm not sure it is. Is Dustin Poirier Gilbert Burns that? Absolutely. And even if it's like, yeah, and even if it's like from our standpoint, like, Gilbert Burns beating a 155-pounder who hasn't had a training camp, is that meaningful to me in any way as, as like, somebody who's actually evaluating talent? Fuck no. It's not even close to being meaningful, but it does what the UFC needs it to. And I think that that's why it's the fight that gets made. And, yeah, and I was going to say I, I agree with everything you just said there. And it, Burns is deserving of a title shot anyway. All right, so. Yeah as a way to just keep him busy for us to see what's kind of a fun, big name fight. And, you know, this is one thing where in this scenario, I like a, a person coming up in weight in this scenario. I didn't necessarily like it when I Desanya had like a couple of title defenses at 185, and then he goes up to 205 to try to become the double champ. Didn't like it there. Clean out your division. That's always my standpoint on fighters going up in weight, especially champions. Where I don't mind it 
where it just kind of tickles the mind to think, oh, what would Dustin Poirier look like at 170 pounds? It's not for a title shot. It's just for him to play spoiler to someone else's title shot. That I do not mind. And if he were to come up and beat um, Gilbert, uh, Burns. Gilbert Burns, yeah, if he were to come up and beat Gilbert Burns, then I could even see, like, hey, maybe I want to see him challenge for the 170-pound title. Now, again, too much depth there, too many people to leapfrog. But that's when I actually like a fighter coming up in weight, is to play, like, spoiler to someone trying to get a title shot, not just gifting them a title shot at their first fight at that division. 100% agree. I I think that that's the only time it makes sense. And I just want to quickly return to the point that you said before about all these people putting together these really long runs and – Yes, it is the depth of the division, too. I, I want to, you know, obviously laud that the UFC has, has crazy depth at those divisions now, too. But I will also say some of the issue in those divisions is that the top of the division just kind of cannibalizes itself over and over again. And there's so few people who are willing to fight down and give shots to those people behind. You know what I mean? It, but before, it used to be... Okay, well, you lost to a fight against the guy in the top five. All right, well, now it's time your turn to fight somebody at the edge of the top 10 or down in the bottom of the top 15 and, and prove that you still belong there. And that's what I really like about Gilbert Burns is Gilbert Burns has always said, like, I'll fight who you put in front of me, right? Like, he, he went he went down fought, fought Neil Magny in Brazil, right? And Neil Magny, tough customer, way down in the rankings, wasn't going to prove anything for it. Like, I, I love that about Gilbert Burns, and I would say I think there need to be more people who say, yeah, I'm a top five guy, but I just lost to another top five guy. It's my turn to fight number 10, or it's my turn to fight number 12. And and there's just, like, not a lot of that, specifically at welterweight. So uh, hopefully we see a little bit more soon. Hey, I got to tell you something. I am quite enamored with the PFL model of a year-long tournament, and this is something I've been thinking about recently. I happen to not trust the UFC when it comes to matchmaking. I think the UFC has become like a marketing machine. I think you see it with like, who's the 17-year-old Mexican fighter? Oh, Raul Raul Rosas Jr. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're high on him now, right? Well, I mean, he he did just lose, but like... I know, know, I know. In that that way that prospects lose when you push them too fast in the Sage Northcutt model, maybe? And that's what I was going to say. It reminds me of the Sage Northcutt model. Instead of looking like a Ken doll, he just happens to be, you know, a young kid, which plays well on social media. It's noteworthy. It's something people would talk about at water coolers if they still checked into offices, which they don't. But it's something to talk about in the Slack channel. And he's got the Mexican fan base. They love, obviously love that market. So you could tell they're pushing him and they're going to try to give him favorable matchups and feature him in spots that get him in the conversation. And that's, you know, that's where the UFC stops being a sport to me. And it's more of the uh, entertainment business. So my point being is I don't necessarily trust them. Like you even see that with Sugar Sean O'Malley and his run to the, you know, a supposed title shot coming up soon. I don't trust them. So what I would actually love to see the UFC do, and we've talked about this before, I know they're never going to do it. So this is just a couple of fans just dreaming, but they have a natural break in their schedule around Christmas time. I think they take about three weeks off, which is great. Give everyone a rest in the UFC marketing and media departments. Give the fighters a natural rest. 
I think at the beginning of January, it would be awesome if they just took the top eight from every division and to the best of their ability, match them up in a Grand Prix as the year goes along. And, hey, some guys are going to drop out. They're going to get injured. Okay, that's when you bring in your 9 and 10 guy to fill in. But now at least I'm just looking at a top eight that gets matched up automatically, and it's not so much the UFC picking and choosing their favorite fighters and putting them in, you know, favorable spots. Yeah, I agree with you on that. I will say it's worth that. That actually winds up being more like the Bellator model because they're they're doing that, but only like a division at a time every single year. And I will say it has worked with really mixed results in Bellator, right? Like we've seen some phenomenal tournaments out of Bellator. Like the the one we've reached the finals. It's actually happening this weekend. We're not going to talk about it on this show, but like Ralvion Stotts versus Patchy Mix in the finals. That tournament worked out perfect. That is going to be a sick finals. Everybody's going to be excited for it. But there's been some some ones like the light heavyweight one where every fight seemingly fell apart. We wound up with you know Julius Angelikis in a title fight at one point in time. Like that's not the kind of shit you want. So like. Yes, I agree. Like, I would love to see, like, their hand forced a little bit more as far as matchmaking goes. You know, like, us having some level of predictability and, like, some deservedness. But also, man, does bad shit happen sometimes when you set a bracket? It does. It does. You know what I like about that, though? Like, where you, if you did set the top eight and you just said, like, this is what we're aiming for because I know injuries are going to come up. I like that now we're arguing about a top – or we're arguing about the eighth spot and the 9-10 guy, and not arguing about, like, one, two, three, and which of the two or the three deserve the title shot. Because three gets it, and then two will get it if they win, right? Like, and we're just, we're okay with it. And, well, what I like about, like, the idea of just making it more about, like, hey, who's in the top eight, it reminds me of what college football did, because there used to be so much drama and anger around which two teams got in the national championship. And now that they, you know, more or less seeded it, I feel like there's not as much rancor over, oh, man, that fourth team. Like, yeah, there's a little bit of like, okay, who deserves that fourth seed? But it's not so much like you're screwing a really, really great team out of a title shot. You know, you're putting in your top four. And in this case, you'd be putting in your top eight. So, like, the ninth guy kind of misses it just doesn't seem as criminal as when the number three spot misses right, right. In the title shot. Because because right now we would be talking about, you know, because right now we're talking about Bilal Muhammad getting screwed over, right? Like that, that was the, right, the talk sucks. of this whole thing. We would be probably be talking about Vicente Luque getting screwed over for the eighth spot. Exactly. And that, no that, cares you're about. right. That feels that feels so much better. Or even like Sean Brady. Like, and, and don't get me wrong. Love Sean Brady. Huge Sean Brady fan here. But like, Talking about Sean Brady getting screwed over, who just got knocked out by Bilal Muhammad, right? Does it feel as bad as talking about Bilal Muhammad getting screwed over? So, uh, yeah, no, I, I think you're right. Like, something that opens it up a little bit more and, like, lets everybody know, hey, I'm exactly two fights away from a title shot and there's nothing the UFC can do about it. Um, it, it feels better. And, and to your point, this is just a, a fanboy's dream because at, at no point in time is the UFC ever going to do this. But... Like, I, I like that level of certainty. And to your point, that's what PFL has done, and to some extent Bellator has done, uh, and, and it's made it for better storylines at certain points. 
And, hey, this will be the last thing we say on it, because I know this is just two fans bullshitting about something that's never going to happen in the UFC. But just randomly, let's just, said, let's just say if the UFC were to take 145 right now and make an eight-man tournament, it really is nice, dude. Look at this. Yair Rodriguez would face Giga Chikadze. Max Holloway would face Chan Sung Jung. Brian Ortega would face Calvin Cater. And Arnold Allen would face Josh Emmett in the first round. Well, you didn't, you didn't put... And those are, you didn't put Volkanovski in there. I know. Well, I was thinking like maybe you know just for the title shot. Okay, okay. But, as, but as, even as Volkanovski, but, but but Bellator's been squeezing their chance in there. So like one of those eight has to get put out. So like again, we're we're talking Giga, about it would be Giga. It would be Giga, Giga would right? be put out. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. If, so again, if we're like, oh man, Giga's getting screwed over. That sucks. But wait, we're talking about Giga getting screwed over, not. Uh oh, damn. Does Max deserve another title shot or? Uh, oh shit! Right. Like Yaya Rodriguez needs to unify these titles, or you know, like I—I I mean, we, we, you didn't even mention Aaliyah Tapuria. Aaliyah Tapuria might be moving in on a title shot because I—I mean, like he's fighting Josh Emmett next, and damn, he's probably close too. So, yeah, like the—the the people we're talking about here, not nearly as egregious as uh, as if we were just talking about one person getting screwed over. Well, I'll tell you who's not getting screwed over. It's our fans, because we're about to break down UFC Vegas 71, give you a couple of fights we like, a dog to play, a parlay to play, and uh, maybe even a little more. Let's get into it, Gumby. Fights, dogs, and parlays for UFC Vegas 71. Who sponsors this edition? This edition of Fight Sucks and Parlays is brought to you by Maroon Social, M-A-R-U-N-E. Maroon Social is the one and only social media app for the martial arts enthusiasts. Whether you do kickboxing, judo, sambo, jiu-jitsu, or any other martial art, you can use Maroon Social to log your training sessions, tag your training partners, log competitions, weigh-ins, and so much more. Ditch that dirty jiu-jitsu journal and get yourself Maroon Social wherever it is you download apps. So we have a Curtis Blades fight this weekend. <laughs> we are yes. huge Curtis Blades <laughs> fans on this show. He is 12-3-1 in his UFC career, and the three losses come to people named... Uh, Francis Naganu and Derek Lewis. Everyone else he has run through. He has lit people up like a pinata. He is potentially going to break the UFC takedown record one day. The man is a takedown artist. I actually really like a matchup of Curtis Blades and John Jones at heavyweight. So with a win this weekend, uh, you know, Curtis Blades would put himself in that mix. Blades, the minus 170 favorite on a three fight win streak. And he's facing Sergey Pavlovich, the plus 140 dog. Pavlovich has been very impressive in the UFC. He's 17 and 1 as a professional in the UFC itself. He is 5 and 1. He debuted on a TKO loss to Alistair Overeem and has since won five fights in a row, coming off a big KO over Taito Yuvasa, TKO Derek Lewis before that. Five and one in the UFC finds himself the dog here to Curtis Blades, who we all assume game plan take him down, ground and pound. Who you got? We yeah, we know his is well. We we said that before though, right? We said that when he fought Chris Dawkins. We said, oh, C- Curtis Blades, take him down, pound him out, especially because Chris Dawkins is so much smarter, smaller than him. And what did he go in there and do? He flatlined him with a right hand, real brutal. Um, I'm gonna go with Curtis Blades here. Uh, I'm going to go with Curtis Blades for a number of reasons. The the first one being Pavlovich just really hasn't faced anybody who can take him down, right? Is like 
you know, you, you go back and you look at his record in this run, right? We got Tai Tuivaza, clearly not trying to take you down. Derek Lewis, not trying to take you down. Shamil Abdurakahimov did try to take him down once. I actually went back and watched that one takedown attempt just to be like, oh, what did that look like? And Shamil Abdurakahimov spammed like an overhand right. He got in on almost into the body, never looked for the legs at all, kind of abandoned it as soon as is Pavlovich framed out. But the fact of the matter is, is he got in. And if he can get inside on Sergei Pavlovich, let me tell you who else can get inside. And that's Curtis Blades. Because Curtis Blades closed the distance really well. And with the exception of our friend Derek Lewis, nobody out there is hitting him on the way in. He's really crafty in the way that he gets in. And once he's on top of you, good luck, man. It's over. And if you want to go back to Sergei Pavlovich's only loss in the UFC, Overeem took him down and he couldn't get Overeem off of him. Uh, over him with the ground and pound finish. Uh, so like, I, I, I'm saying if if he's not fought anybody who can beat you up on the ground, you know, Marcelo Gome and Maurice Green are the other two names on his resume. And the one guy who could take him down, beat the living hell out of him there. Man, I don't like your chances against a guy who might be the greatest heavyweight takedown artist of all time. In comparison with, you know, I'm going to throw Daniel Cormier's name out there too, because Daniel Cormier, you know, legitimate gripe to be the number one too but like Curtis Blades is right there and I would say you know I think he's just going to be on top of uh Pavlovich this whole time pounding his head in I agree completely so I'm not going to add anything Bobby Green is a minus 275 favorite uh Jared Gordon a plus 250 dog Bobby Green a minus 275 favorite is on a two-fight losing streak just lost to Drew Dober and Islam Makhachev he's 36 years old uh, he has been fighting in the UFC since 2013. So we are going on a decade of Bobby Green, and he finds himself on a, as a 275 dog at 36 years old on a two-fight losing streak. Jared Gordon is 34 years old. He is on a one-fight losing streak because he just lost to Patty Pimblett, beat Leonardo Santos before that, Lost to Grant Dawson before that, so he is one and two in his last three. Uh, he finds himself a very big dog here. Uh, you can get him at plus 250. Who you got? I'm actually going to go with Jared Gordon. Uh, I, I can't yeah. Believe, I can't believe he's this big of a dog because here's the thing. Crazy. Yeah, he beat Patty Pimblett. Like, he, he's on a winning streak. Like, you, you can say he didn't beat Patty Pimblett if you want, if you're a, you know, a, somebody who loves Patty Pimblett and you want to convince yourself he won. That's cool. He didn't beat Patty Pimblett or he didn't lose to Patty Pimblett. He beat Patty Pimblett and he did so with his takedowns. And the crazy thing is that like Patty Pimblett is a guy who's good at jujitsu and he's good at wrestling and he's good. You know, he's that that's his thing. Jared Gordon took the wrestling to him and Bobby Green has had issues with that before. If you go back and you watch his fight with Tiago Moises uh, you know, like he not only was giving up takedowns, but he was kind of like giving up takedowns by like trying to hit switches or like grabbing uh, cameras and hoping that worked. And I just don't see that working against Jared Gordon, right? Like I, I see Jared Gordon using that. And, you know, Bobby Green's big thing is he uses a lot of forward pressure and stuff like that. Anytime Pimwit did that, Gordon cracks a little bit, right? Like he throws that like, step in looping right hand and then circles away. Like, I, I think that that works well here against Bobby green. Now 
Bobby Green's probably going to hit him with the volume, and he's got good cardio, but I don't know if he's got good wrestler cardio. So, yeah, give me give me Jared Gordon, especially at this number. Some of the craziest odds I've seen this calendar year, and I like him at, at that plus money for sure. Even if head-to-head you still pick Green, I like him on that money. I and, like him and, on that plus And I'm going to throw this in there. I saw an interview with John Morgan recently where Bobby Green said he might be retiring. You know, who, whoever looks one good, foot with, out. whoever looks good with one foot out the door. Brad Tavares, you want to talk about guys who've been in the UFC a long time. Brad Tavares has been in the UFC since 2010. He was on the Ultimate Fighter Liddell versus Team Ortiz finale. Was his <laughs> debut in the UFC, beating Seth Bozinski. Uh Recently, he just came off a loss to Dracus Duplissis. Uh, he had two wins before that and two losses before that. So. He is two and three in his last five. He's fighting Bruno Silva, who debuted in the UFC back in 2021. He's three and two in the UFC, but on a two-fight losing streak, one to Alex Pereira and one to Gerald Mearshart, his most recent. That was a guillotine submission loss. He tapped out. Uh, he finds himself as the plus 150 dog here. Tavares, the minus 165 favorite. Who you got? You know, when this posted, I really thought I liked Bruno Silva because I, I w- remembered that fight with Pajeda, and I actually think I picked him to beat Pajeda in that fight, um, which in retrospect looks terrible. Um, but I liked him because he had, like, a little bit of wrestling, and, and he's obviously a kickboxer, so I was like, oh, yeah, kickboxer versus kickboxer, take the guy who can wrestle a little bit. I went back and watched a little bit of his fight with Gerald Mearshart. His kickboxing isn't as good as I remembered it being. He misses Gerald Mearshart a lot, and let me tell you something. Gerald Mearshart, not the best defensive boxer, as we've learned from some of his recent fights, right? Like, he just gets cracked sometimes. And and Bruno Silva couldn't seem to find him and then kind of tired out. And let me tell you something. If if you're having trouble hitting somebody and you tire out easily, Brad Tavares is going to eat you for dinner. Because Brad Tavares is just like a little cardio machine, and he doesn't go away. If you look at Brad Tavares' record, you're right. Like, does it look really great lately? No, he's two and three in his last five. But like, with the exception of that KO loss to Edmund Shabazian, which will never not surprise me, right? People aren't putting this guy away. This guy went five rounds with Israel Adesanya. He went three rounds with Dreykus Duplices. He beat Omari Akhmedov. He beat Antonio Carlos Jr. Million dollar winner, Antonio Carlos Jr. You know, like, he, he's not a guy who's got, like, a super questionable chin. He hangs in there. He's gritty. He brings the fight to you. He shoots takedowns. And, and I just think that that's kind of a nightmare for Bruno Silva, who's, you know, like I said, he's got a little bit of wrestling, but he's not a wrestler. So I think Tavares, who doesn't use his wrestling a lot, but does when he's fighting a kickboxer, right? He used it a little bit against uh, Izzy. I think it might work here for him. And even if it doesn't, I think he's going to be like the fresher fighter in rounds two and three here. I like it. Our dog of the week is Brady Highstand, a plus 115. Let's hear it. Yeah, friend of the show, Brady Highstand. I love this dude in this spot for a couple of reasons. Number one, in his second UFC fight, he came out looking jacked. And we talked about it on the interview just a second ago. He's actually lighter despite the fact that he looks jacked now. And it's partially just like a really great strength and conditioning program. He's got a gas tank that can work for days now. And actually, when this fight posted, he was a plus 155 underdog. So the money's coming in on Brady Heastand. You'll want to jump on this line as soon as you can and get him at dog money before he's a favorite. Because I think he's just going to absolutely manhandle Denabot Carell in the grappling realm. He's going to get on those legs. And even if he doesn't get loads of takedowns early... 
Baccarel is going to be so tired in the later rounds. Wouldn't be shocked with a submission finish, particularly in the second and third round. But hey, at plus money on just the money line, uh, I like that one right there. Our parlay to play is Jeremiah Wells, a minus 115 favorite, and Lasman Lucindo, a minus 300. Pair them together, plus 150. Let's, it, it gets you plus 150. Break it down. So, yeah, Jeremiah Wells, uh, you know, I just talked about Brady Heastan, the money coming in on him and his number lowering. It's actually happening in the opposite direction for Jeremiah Wells. He, he posted at, like, negative 170 originally, and he's down all the way to negative 115. I don't know why. It, maybe people really love the Matthew Semmelsberger win over uh, Jake Matthews in his last fight, right? Like, he tagged Jake Matthews a whole bunch of times. He got his own wrestling going. I don't think he's going to get his wrestling going against Jeremiah Wells here. And in addition to that, like, he uses a lot of forward pressure. And when he does, he doesn't throw a lot. It's trying to draw the punches out from his opponent. And he got tagged a couple of times by Matthews. You don't get tagged more than once by Jeremiah Wells. That's a fact. And Court McGee learned it the hard way. And Court McGee's one of the toughest dudes in this division. So, yeah, I like Jeremiah Wells, especially as this number trends closer and closer to even. And I'm pairing it with Yasmin uh, Lucindo because, look, I, I like Brogan Walker Sanchez, or Brogan, I think she just goes by Brogan Walker now. I liked her on the Ultimate Fighter, but the fact of the matter is, is she, when she can get controlled by the wrestling, I think she's in a lot of trouble. And Lucindo looked really good getting body clinches against Jasmine Horwegi in her first fight. Horwegi has shown that she's so good too. So Lucindo, I, I think a rightful negative 300 favorite here. Um, and we could juice that lineup on the Jeremiah Wells fight by adding her in and get plus 150. Boom. That wraps up this edition of Fights, Dogs, and Parlays for UFC Vegas 71. Let us know how we did with our picks. If you love them, if you hate them, we want to hear the feedback. At Top Turtle MMA, on the Twitter, on the IG. Gumby, we're having a party here. Let's not let it stop. What should we do next? Well, we're going to transition now to my interview with Ricky Glenn, who talks a little bit about his most recent layoff and being excited to get back into the cage at UFC Vegas 71. And we're going to get to that interview for you right now. All right, and joining me today is Ricky Glenn, who fights Chris Dosiagos at UFC Vegas 71. That fight is on April 22nd. So, Ricky, I wanted to start here. Uh, obviously, you were building some momentum in this division. You hit terrible luck again. Tore your groin, had to pull out of a fight. What did the recovery look like for you coming off of that big injury? Oh, man. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was uh, quite the injury. It was a complete tear of the adductor longest tendon where it attaches at the pelvis bone. And it just um, suddenly happened. So it was kind of like, you know, a big halt on my momentum, of course. And uh, the recovery was getting surgery on it within a month uh reattach and 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 uh and it was about six months before we really got back in regular and then I eased my way back into um my regular stuff. And you said suddenly in there, too, I assume this was not like a nagging injury. This wasn't something that was bothering you. It went from, like, zero to 100 in no time flat? Kind of. It was, like, something I noticed in the past that, you know, kind of twisting and dipping too much into that leg and felt like kind of like a stinger or just, like, a little muscle strain. And then it'd go away when you warm up. And, and then um, a couple of weeks before it happened, I noticed, like, hey, whoa, this 
feels kind of funny, like a little muscle strain or some soreness and then go away when I warm up. And then, um, I was, I was warming up doing some wrestling stuff and I went to kick someone over and it just snapped. It felt like I got stabbed in the groin. It was pretty painful. And, um, and I couldn't lift my leg and so I got it checked out and sure enough, it was completely torn and luckily I got in with a good surgeon and they got me fixed up quick. Well, that's good to hear that you got fixed up quick. Now, I know this layoff was not as bad as some of those previous layoffs you had with some other injuries. What was it like dealing with that mentally, though? Because it it seemed like you were over that hump and then had to deal with, you know, yet another kind of long layoff. Yeah, exactly. I just had over a two-year layoff from a a different hip uh, injury, which was a nagging long injury. I finally got that fixed and... You know, had some big changes going up a weight class and um, moving back to Iowa. And, you know, things were looking on the up and up. I had two fights looking at a third one for the year and, um, you know, a higher-ranked opponent. And then, boom, just, you know, hit pretty hard. And uh, financially, too, kind of sucks. I wasn't able to do any of my side work either as well, you know, just because it's my crutches for two months and recovering for another four months. So I wasn't able to do much. I, I did end up, you know, doing what I could with my opposite leg when I was able to do my, my exercises and things and upper body stuff and going to the YMCA with all my crutches for a couple months. It was interesting. I like it. Now you, you mentioned, and I wanted to talk about those changes too, right? Because you talked about, you know, moving back to Iowa, going up a weight class, and you had really great success out of the gate with that. Obviously, the Grant Dawson fight was a big back-and-forth affair, one that, you know, some people thought you already won. You know, you were close to finishing at points. Like, what were sort of your thoughts and your takeaways from, you know, a guy who was pretty much ranked at the time, you went in there and gave him that kind of trouble. What were your takeaways from that fight? My, the big takeaway was him going out and, like, you know, uh, he wasn't able to get up. And when I'm pointing at him, he's looking at the ground. And you could tell he's not there. And I've seen another, uh, you know, maybe less than a handful of fights where you don't answer the bell and you can't get up. That's it. You, if you can't continue to stand up, you're you're done. Um, and this cornerman ran in there right away as I'm pointing at him. Hey, you can't get up. You know, look at him. He's out. He's out. What's going on? And the ref's like examining him and then, his corpsman picks him up and you can see in the video, like he takes him over to the cage and, and Grant's like, oh, what, what, what's going on? You know, like all confused. And, and I think uh, his corpsman, I even heard him say like, you know, hey, just shut up, you know, shut up. <laughs> Trying to like help him out. Like, which, you know, they did a great job, but it's like, dang it, come on. And uh, so obviously there's some things from that fight too, you know, they're going to be looking at for, for my up and coming fight and, Worked on my takedown defense, of course, but Grant Dawson was a, you know, a good takedown guy. Yeah, and, and I was going to ask you about that, too, because obviously your takedown defense held up pretty damn well there. And now here you are fighting a guy who also loves to grapple in Christos Iagos. When they came to you with that name for the booking, was it, you know, like sort of an extra bonus knowing that you were going to get a guy who, you know, maybe doesn't have the physical build of Grant Dawson, but like has similar things he wants to do in there? Yeah, I think so. He seems more like a brawler, but he, I, yeah, more of a wrestler, I'd say. And uh, you know, I just got to I got to start faster and not be so lackadaisy. I do have good takedown defense um, later in the fight, but I I need to I need to start 
sharp right away. Obviously, you know, my last fight, I got taken down and was down on the mat the whole first round. Um, but after that, I, you know, kind of got warmed up. But so kind of changing my warm up and, and doing things a little different and having that in mind. Um, and, you know, there's some things that uh, it's kind of nice because a lot of people haven't really been able to see much of my striking. I, you know, I've been I was out for a couple of years, but then when I came back, I had a, like a 30, 30 some second knockout. And then there wasn't too much fighting with, with Grant and I. So a lot of things that I've, I've changed, done over the years, improving, um, you know, there's no footage on it. <laughs> <laughs> that That is a nice, nice little thing to have in your back pocket. Now I'm curious, you know, you said, you know, we haven't seen it in a while. Is it big evolution? Is it going back to things you did you know, kind of prior, because I, I know, you know, returning to Iowa is sort of like, you know, returning to the roots more than anything. It, is it going back to the old stuff or is it more like, you know, just development on top of the new stuff? I mean, it's a little both. Like my mindset's always been, you know, kill or be killed and, and just get in there and be, be nasty and be violent. But with the striking coach that I've been working with, Victor Marino at Absolute MMA and Fitness, um, his striking is some of the best striking I've 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 been around in the, in the world. And I've, you know, I've trained at elite level gyms and, and he's a fighter as well. And, uh, it's just amazing that he hasn't been in the UFC and been a, a champion, a world champion in, in some kind of striking aspect of, 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 uh, you know, combat or whatever. But, um, yeah, he's really good. He's, he's helped me, he helped me a lot. Helped me use my range. He's pretty range himself. And, um, yeah. It's been it's been great. There's been some really good changes um, over the years. Our you know our jiu-jitsu community in Des Moines, Iowa has, has grown a lot. There's some high-level uh, grapplers in Des Moines. I work with Carson Carlson at Henzo Gracie uh, Jiu-Jitsu in Des Moines. There's a big nice group over there. He's a beast. And then my wrestling coach Tyler Brandt, uh, seven-second coaching. He he's amazing. He's helped me out a lot. Well, that's great to hear. Now, you know, you mentioned earlier, and I usually like to end these things with a prediction. You mentioned earlier, we haven't gotten a chance to see a lot of your striking, you know, 30 seconds, maybe total in the last two fights. And it's been a little bit of a layoff. So give me a prediction. Are we going to get a chance to see it all come April 22nd? Yeah, I think, I I think so. You know, I, I, uh, I'd say kind of similar to some of my other fights that, you know, if he, if he comes in and, if he comes in hard and wants to strike, I think I'm going to knock him out. If he wants to grapple, I'm, I'm going to finish him on the ground. You know, if he's, if he's trying to play safe and run, then I'll win by decision. I like it. Beating him where he is. And once again, fans, this is Ben Ricky Glenn, who fights Chris Santiago's at UFC Vegas 71. That fight once again, April 22nd. Ricky, thank you so much for the time, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Dan. Appreciate it. And that's going to do it for another episode of Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We want to thank you, the fans, for tuning in each and every week. We would not have a show without you guys. We also want to thank Maroon Social for keeping the lights on in the Top Turtle MMA studio. And remember, you can check us out on Twitter and Instagram, at Top Turtle MMA, in both of those locations. And until next week, I'm Daniel Gibby-Freeland, he's Shockwave Dave Tremonte, and we will catch you then.